Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, as we have gathered together today, we do so in light of your love. Your love is not like our love, for you love unconditionally and you love faithfully. It has no beginning, it has no end. It endures forever and it isn't based on looks or performance. You do not fall into love or out of love. No matter what happens, those who you love cannot be separated from you. Lord, this morning we ask for your forgiveness. While your love is perfect and never-ending, our love is imperfect. We do not love you or others as we ought to. We look for what we can get out of others, not what we can do for them. Our attempts to love are often motivated by our selfish desires. Forgive us for not loving you and others in the way that you would have us. Give us a renewed heart and desire to love in a way that reflects you and your character. May we become one with you and be more and more like you. This morning, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us your spirit. Lord, you have united us into you and with you, and you will never leave us to ourselves. For you, our faithful God, are worthy of our thanks. We also thank you for what you are doing in the world around us. This morning, we thank you for what you are doing in the country of Iraq. We thank you for missionaries who have faithfully moved their families to this country and are proclaiming the gospel there. We pray that they would be faithful and that your church would grow and expand in that nation. Thank you that you are faithful there and will save those who you intend to save. Finally, we pray for ourselves. We pray for our witness here in the city of Salem. May we be a bright light and a faithful testimony of your love to this world. Protect us against being arrogant or conceited, as if we have a gift and others do not. Give us a love for those around us that is supernatural and represents your name and character. We also pray for the, the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. May it stir our hearts up to love and good works. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick. Uh, you can have a seat. Grab your notebooks and pens and Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 3, if you would, starting in verse 7. Hopefully the turkey tryptophan that you had this uh, week has worn off, so you all stay awake. We've got a lot of uh, Old Testament scripture to go through today in order to gain an understanding of this passage. You guys ready? All right. Well, one of my favorite memories from playing college basketball actually happened off the court. Being an athlete at the University of Notre Dame gained me access to some places that would otherwise be inaccessible to me. When I was a freshman, we played against Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and our coach at the time had a connection to one of the higher-ups in the Secret Service, and he was able to get us a chance to go into the White House on a private tour. So we were able to see the cabinet room, the Oval Office, I was able to stand behind the press podium, which is actually really short, uh, and even watch then-President Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin uh, from Russia lift off in Marine One from the back lawn. Uh, it was an amazing experience for a 19-year-old. To be able to do this months prior to going, we had to run through security clearance, and I remember after going through that process and then entering this heavily secured West Wing, uh, I was thinking to myself that there was no reason that I should be in this building, no reason I should be let in. And yet, because I had received the security clearance, because I was given a special badge that carried the seal of the White House on it, and because our team had a connection to someone inside, I knew that I was secure in my admittance. I was not going to get thrown out for no apparent reason. When something is that secure with regards to keeping people out, you can also guess that it's pretty secure as far as keeping people in. And that was reassuring, especially at the moment where we walked out on the front lawn and I had about 30 sniper lasers come up on me <laughs> with all of the security snipers on the roof, right? We knew we were supposed to be there, so we had no fear. It was good to, be remembered, uh, to remember that we were supposed to be there. Now, in our current world, this idea of inclusion or exclusion is not a popular one, of being kept out. 
Uh, But try not to go to the political arguments and debates in your mind for a moment. Simply sit with me in the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that all mankind deserves exclusion from God's presence. It teaches that because of the sin of our first mother and father and the sin which we then participate in, all mankind is excluded from the presence of the one true and holy God. We can't get in to his presence. And the resulting consequence is this idea of eternal separation and torment from the source of life and of love and all that is good. This is the baseline bad news that the Bible presents us with that points our eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, relationship with God by our own voluntary sin has become exclusionary. No matter what we do or how righteous we act, the gates, the door of the sanctuary of God's temple in which he dwells, it's closed to us like the White House was to me prior to getting quote-unquote security clearance. Now for God's temple, there's only one gatekeeper. There's only one person with security clearance. There's one person that has the keys to that door, and he has done all that is necessary to open that door. And he's offered an invitation to anyone that will come. But he will only allow those who answer his call and submit to his reign. There is no other way to eternal life. And so here in Revelation, to a portion of the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira and Sardis, Christ has given some exhortations and warnings that they need to be serious about their faith or else they may not find their way into eternal life. They may find themselves at the end of days on the outside looking in. For those of us that are honest with ourselves, these statements are humbling because we realize our own propensity for sin and for turning from Christ. And so they're needed for us to remind us of the seriousness of this idea. But to the church of Philadelphia that we come to today, Christ has a bit of a different statement one of simple and straightforward encouragement that he has opened the way. He has opened the doors to eternal life. And no matter what Philadelphia and the people within it in the church there come against, no matter how weak they feel, he has opened the door to be one with him, and no one can close it. This morning we come to our second to last mini-letter where we will see a word to the church at Philadelphia where he tells them to be secure in his love. Be secure in my love. That's his word to the church at Philadelphia. He has opened the door to his presence, and no one can shut it. Now, as context of this encouragement, we will need to grasp this idea of inclusion and exclusion in the kingdom of God. We will have to grasp that there is a door And some will be found on the outside, and some on the inside. Here we will see a church that is affirmed in their faith, and a group of supposed followers of Yahweh that are ironically excluded from the people of God. We will see both. And this is the context that will set up the word that he's giving to this church. So let's read through it now and unpack it, and we'll see what I'm talking about. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. Now, as with other letters, we first see the salutation that references back to the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. And Christ here pictures himself as the sovereign God and king. And hopefully you're already starting to see that there's themes throughout this section, themes of authority. That's the symbol of the keys and the fact that there's a king, this idea of being included or excluded. All of these are here. But first we see a salutation from the sovereign God and king. We're going to camp in these verses, just the first couple here, for a bit because they heavily rely upon Old Testament allusion, specifically drawing ideas and images from the prophet Isaiah. And he begins with these two characteristics, holy one and true one. Now, both of these are meant to point to the full deity of Christ, that he is indeed God. He is one with the Father, for it is God alone that has no other equal. He alone is truth. He alone is holy. Anything that is truthful or holy other than God derives those things from him. And this is what it means to be God. You see, we cannot be God because we are not innately truthful or holy. But the one true holy God is these things innately. And these are titles for Yahweh. And so Jesus is saying, I am God. Now the word holy contains within it a distinction that means separate or set apart. To be holy is to be entirely other God is holy because he is outside of the creation that he made. He is unaffected by the perversion of that creation that mankind has caused. It's only because he is set apart that we have hope. He alone, because he is set apart, can bring restoration back to the creation that we broke because he is outside of it at the same time that he is sovereign over it. And the title Holy One and Holy One of Israel is used throughout the Bible, but specifically in Isaiah, it's used 29 times. It's one of the major titles that Isaiah uses for God. Now, the idea of the hope of God's people and the, the hope that they have for redemption and restoration depends upon this Holy One. And this otherworldly distinction also gives a sense of sovereignty and royal reign. Look at how Yahweh identifies himself, for example, in Isaiah 43:15, just to take one of the many verses. He says, I am Yahweh, that's I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, Jesus is claiming rightly so that he is God. He is the sovereign, all-powerful King. Now it is in fashion today to say that truth is relative to each person. But at the day of judgment, there will only be one truth, the empirical truth of God. You and I do not get to decide our own morality, our own law, our own truth. God alone is the ultimate truth and holiness. We can argue with him all we want, but it will not go well for us. We would do well to make sure we are on the side of his truth, the truth, when the day of judgment comes. And it is these attributes of truth and holiness that John will draw upon throughout Revelation to remind us that Jesus is the sovereign God. But then he also says at the end of verse 7, let's take a look there. He says, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now this is very similar to the characteristic that Jesus declared in the vision of Revelation 1. Remember this from Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Jesus claimed in that vision, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And notice, I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't walking around with a big old key ring on his belt, right? Uh, you know, over the top of his toga with his Birkenstocks. That's not what's going on here. These are symbols of authority. The one in his day who had a key was the one with authority. Now, because of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus conquered death and the abode of death, Hades itself, what we would refer to as hell. And he is the one that has keys, the authority to convey someone to eternal life or to eternal death. But the wording is a bit different here to the church at Philadelphia. Now, you may have heard this taught as speaking about evangelism. I've heard it taught this way many different times, that God is telling the church at Philadelphia to go and evangelize. And this is often decided from the use of similar language of an open door that Paul uses throughout his letters to talk about evangelism. 
But what Paul is saying in those letters and what John is saying here is a bit different. The focus of this verse is not on the open door first and foremost in this verse, but it's the door that's opened by, notice, the key of David. This is very particular language, isn't it? The only other place that uses this phrase is Isaiah 22. Would you turn there with me? We're going to unpack this because all of its imagery is meant to flood forward into this phrase in Revelation. Isaiah 22. Give me an amen when you're there. Now, the backstory here is that after the death of King David, the most revered king in Israel's history, and the death of his son Solomon, Israel was torn in two and divided into a northern kingdom, known as Israel, and a southern kingdom, known as Judah. Both kingdoms had adopted pagan worship and intermixed it with the worship of Yahweh. And in judgment, God sent the pagan nation of Assyria to conquer Israel and drag them into exile. So then Assyria conquers the northern kingdom, but then shows up at Judah's doorstep in the south, and Judah says, hold on, let's try and negotiate. The king of Judah at the time, Hezekiah, sent out three of his highest officials to negotiate with the delegation from Assyria. You guys, you guys can read about this on your own this week if you'd like in 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. That'll give you the historical background of this story. Now, one of Hezekiah's officials was not a good man and was trying to make a name for himself, even in the midst of all this chaos, by carving a tomb for himself in the same place as previous kings and high officials. And this should not have been his concern because the enemy was breathing down their throat or their neck. His people were about to go into exile unless they repented and followed God. But rather than lead in that, this high official is narcissistically worried about his own uh, ego and his own title. So God tells this servant that he is going to rip him out of his high position and replace him with someone who would be faithful. And this is where we run into the official that he will replace him with, known as Eliakim. And this is Isaiah 22, verse 20. Take a look there. He says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. In those days, keys were so large that they would have to put them on their shoulder to carry them to the gate to use them. Uh, this gives new meaning to Isaiah 9-6 where it talks about the government, the, the authority of Jesus' kingdom will be on his shoulder. Okay? And so that's what's going on here. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So God here was going to place the entire authority of the household and government of David on this man's shoulders. Unfortunately, while Eliakim may have been faithful, the people of Israel were determined to not be, and their idolatry ultimately left them in a place where they would be conquered and exiled by Babylon, and this man's authority would also fall. But why is Jesus using this same exact language, a door that will be open and no one will be able to shut and shut and no one will be open? Why is he using that in Revelation? Well, here what we see in Isaiah 22 is a type and picture of Jesus foretelling what Jesus would be. Like Eliakim, Jesus was appointed by Yahweh himself to hold this position of authority. Only his was to a far greater office of king over the whole household of God, the church. Second, as part of his position of power as the steward of the Davidic house, Eliakim would have the ability to allow entrance to whom he willed and refuse entrance to others. He was the one with the key to the kingdom with access to the house of the Lord, the temple. Likewise, Jesus alone carries the keys to the kingdom of God. Third, Eliakim's power was equal to the king's, and thus, so would Christ's power be equal to that of God the Father. 
And lastly, a fun and interesting fact, I love the Old Testament names, Eliakim means the God of raising or the God of resurrection. You can see how he's a type of the one who would resurrect. It was because of Jesus' death and resurrection that he held power and victory over the grave and death itself. But even more so, this then also empowered him to be the gatekeeper, the key master, if you will, that allows entrance into the presence of the creator God. This key that symbolizes the authority Jesus holds is the key to a kingdom. And it is a key that could be used only by the rightful king. You see the imagery that's coming up here. This authority is of the kingdom of God. This authority to open and close the gates of access to the creator God is held by Jesus alone. He alone is the gate. And those who are his sheep hear his voice and enter through it. No one can come to the Father by any other way. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus reminds this small church back in Revelation that he is the one who has opened the door to have access to the Father God. And when he opens it, no one can close it. That is how sovereign he is. And he has seen Philadelphia's works on his behalf. And he knows they have accessed it. They have stayed close to Christ and brought others in with them. They have exercised their authority of the keys that Christ gave to them. Now, before we turn back to Revelation, this imagery continues throughout the Bible. And this is very important to understand for the context. Because where did Christ give the church these keys symbolizing authority? Would you turn with me to Matthew 16? Matthew 16. Take a look at verse 15 and notice the language that is used, this idea and symbolism of keys. Jesus and his disciples are at Caesarea Philippi, a place known for its pagan worship, and Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. This is another way of saying that Jesus is the King of the kingdom of Yahweh. And look at what Jesus says in response there in Matthew 16, 15. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, notice, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He tells Peter that he would give him the power, the same power he had, to exercise his authority as an emissary of his heavenly household. Now, the big debate is that the Catholics will say that this power was only given to Peter as the first pope and remains with the pope, while we Protestants will say, yes, it was given to Peter as the leader of the disciples, but the statement of the keys in verse 19 was actually given to all the apostles as the beginnings of his church. Now, we believe this because just a couple of chapters later, Jesus outlines how the entirety of the church, not just the Pope, is to execute the process of church discipline should a member of the church be walking in unrepentant sin. It's a sign that they're not actually a true Christian. So look with me at Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. You'll notice that the same language of power to bind and loose that was used in 16, where there is discussion of keys, is also used here. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And don't worry, I'm going to wrap it all back to Revelation here in a minute. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, excluded from the covenant. Then he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's the authority of the keys. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name... There I am among them. The same language is used to execute that power of the kingdom. So hopefully you're starting to see here the importance of affirming and denying membership in the body of, the Christ, of Christ. 
Members of Mission Fellowship, do you take this seriously? We see the pattern of the key to the kingdom of God being used all the way through Scripture, and Jesus is the one who holds it, and he gives it to his church to use. The church is the one that uses the key to grant membership into the kingdom of God or not. You might say, Hans, this sounds very Catholic. kind of is because the Protestants have lost this. And this is the background for what we're going to see in Revelation. This authority of affirming the Christian faith of some and excommunicating others based off of unrepentant sin, this is the authority Christ has given to the faithful, obedient church to allow or excommunicate from his kingdom. The church that desires to be obedient to our God will faithfully execute this process of affirmation and discipline. All of this is the backdrop to the situation that's happening around the church at Philadelphia. So go back there with me to Revelation chapter 3, and let's look at it again. The one who is speaking, the salutation, is coming from the one who holds the key of David, who opens the door to the kingdom of God, and no one will shut it, and who shuts the door to the kingdom of God, and no one opens. And this is the power that he has given to the local church. What Christ is saying to Philadelphia, this small local church, is that they have been faithful in their primary role of exercising the power of the keys. The authority of affirming the faith of some and standing firm against others it is in this that they have been a faithful witness. And this is the commendation we see next. We see a commendation that you have endured and witnessed against all odds. We'll see this in the rest of verse 8 and into verse 10. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. This is entrance into the kingdom, which no one is able to shut. But then he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In other words, there's something forcing against them, trying to get them to deny his name. What is that? He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, extra-biblical history tells us that the Jewish council of Jamnia happened shortly before Revelation was written. And one of the major outcomes of that council was that all Jews who were part of synagogues that professed Jesus as Messiah and Lord were to be excluded. They were to be excommunicated. In essence, kicked out of the Jewish community, out of the Old Testament or Old Covenant people of God. But the biblical reality was that these ethnic Jews were not submitting to the truth that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah and King. So there was a Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia who said, we are part of the covenant with Yahweh, and yet they would not say that Jesus was their Messiah. This meant that they were not God's people. Even though they were ethnically Jewish, they were, as Jesus says here, the synagogue of Satan, the church of Satan. They say that they are the Lord's, but in not submitting to Christ and his church, they are flat out lying. They are actually excluded from the people of God when they're saying we're actually included. They're as bad as those Christians from Sardis we talked about last week that are Christians in name only. For as Paul says in Romans, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The church had become the true Israel of God. And the Philadelphian church was small and had little strength. They were probably smaller than we are as a church. They had little strength to stand firm in their God-given authority to exercise the keys of affirmation into the kingdom and excommunication from it. By their very presence, they were saying, those that are part of us are part of the kingdom, and those that are against us are not part of the kingdom. But even though they were weak and small, they had done so. They had stood firm, even though it would have been so easy to discard their profession of Christ as Lord and simply fall back in to their old habits of Judaism. We see throughout the Gospels and Acts that it was very easy to cave to the communal pressure to not profess Christ. But the small church at Philadelphia stood firm in proclaiming Christ. And because of that, Jesus had granted them an open door in which they could be secure in their eternal hope and draw others to the same as well. 
they had not denied the name of Christ, no matter the pressure to do so. And this is the irony, and this is why we need that backdrop of inclusion and exclusion from the kingdom of God. Those who thought they were gods, the Jews in the local synagogue, were actually not, because they did not submit to the one with the keys, Jesus himself, nor did they submit to the people of God, the church, to whom the keys were given. And those who the Jews said were actually errant in professing Christ, the church of Philadelphia, they had actually shown themselves to be the obedient people of God. Do you see the irony, the flip-flop there? It was in this context of inclusion and exclusion based upon the gospel and the exercising of the power of the keys that Jesus commends them. The church at Philadelphia understood their mission to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. They were lights to a lost world, proclaiming with lives and voices that Jesus is Savior, Lord, and King. They were discipling those who were drawn in through the door. And they were exercising the authority of the keys in both affirmation of faith and exclusion of those not walking in obedience of faith. We, it was because of this witness and strong confession of Christ that Christ says he would then prove strong on their behalf. In the same spirit of what we were reading earlier in Psalms, Jesus is encouraging the small church with the fact that one day, these same people from the synagogue of Satan, these ones who said that they were Christ's but were actually not, these people who had once excluded these professing Christians from their synagogue, they would instead have to come and bow down before their feet and admit to these brothers and sisters at the church at Philadelphia that they, that church, were in fact God's true people. But even in this, we see both the sovereign power and overwhelming grace of God. We see the sovereign power in the fact that through Christ and his gospel, he had opened a door to the Gentiles. And it was in their conversion that the Jews and maybe even individuals from this very synagogue of Satan, might actually be converted and eventually bow before Christ. For God is not and was not done with the ethnic Jews, but will require that they come to salvation through Jesus alone. The language that is being used here is also from Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah stated that it would be the non-believing nations, in this case the Gentiles, that would come and worship Yahweh at the feet of his covenant people. Here's Isaiah 60, 14. In Isaiah 60, 14, he prophesies that the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Notice a lot of the same wording that's being used in Revelation, the Holy One. Unfortunately, because of their lack of belief and inability for communal obedience, God took his message of salvation to the Gentiles and would now draw Jews through jealousy. Paul stated this in his letters. In Romans 11, he stated this. He says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. You see, the sovereign choice to open up God's covenant love to both Jew and Gentile believers is one more proof to Jesus' church and one more proof to us as Gentile believers that Jesus is indeed the sovereign king. It's also proof of his love. He alone, God alone, through Christ, has the authority to open or shut the door of his kingdom. And friends, the reality of the gospel is he would have been right and just to close the door to you and I. In fact, the door was closed. And to deny us eternal life and reconciliation with the Father. God was right in closing that door. He would have been right and just to let us die eternally in our sin. And yet, while we were yet sinners, at enmity with him, he died for us. And he paid the penalty for our sin so that the door could be opened and we could be ushered in. God's mercy and grace is beyond compare. He is not only sovereign and powerful, but he is merciful beyond compare. 
Well, Jesus continues there in, uh, to Philadelphia, and he says in verse 10, "'Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, "'I will keep you from the hour of trial "'that is coming on the whole world "'to try those who dwell on the earth.'" So not only will he be there to bring their enemies to a place of humble submission, but he will also hold the church fast in tribulation. Now, this section and this word tribulation has a lot of weight to it. It's admittedly confusing. There is no consensus among scholars. And there's no consensus among any commentators, at least that I have read, because there's many different options. What this could be referring to when it talks about tribulation is a local or regional trial. The area around Philadelphia was known for earthquakes that would topple an entire city. Could it be referring to that? It could be referring to the known world of the Roman Empire. Similar language of worldwide events are used elsewhere in the Bible to discuss a known area of the world at the time. It could be tribulation referring to the trials of the church age in which the greatest of tribulations occurred as the people of God murdered their God-sent Messiah. And the fallout of this did and will continue until Christ's second return. And it's during this time that God would try the hearts of men to see if they are indeed his own. So it could simply be referring to the church age. Or it could be referring to a period of great trial that may occur directly prior to Christ's return, where Satan is let loose of the restrictions placed on him by the advancement of the gospel, and he causes havoc for a time. We'll get into this idea and its merits later in Revelation. But because we don't know specifically which of these it's referring to, the focus instead should be on the fact that whatever this church was facing and whatever the church in general faces, regardless of the odds stacked against them, Jesus will hold the true church fast through it. Those who hold on to their faith and endure in their faith are the true church. And this encouragement is without caveat. There is no statement in parentheses after it. And in this, we notice an encouraging omission. An encouraging omission. Bud, can you go ahead? There we go. Still having trouble with my remote here. An encouraging omission of a warning. As with the church at Smyrna, Jesus gives commendation without warning. Both Smyrna and Philadelphia were poor and without power, and yet they both held fast to the name and authority of Christ in the face of trials. Now, as I said last week, in exposing a passage of text, we usually want to focus on what is there rather than omissions. But when there's a set pattern, as we've seen throughout the letters, we need to acknowledge when that pattern isn't held. And here, it's in the omission of a warning. Many of the other churches, except for Smyrna, are given a warning. The works, the life, the obedience, the submission of this church, Philadelphia, had been so powerful, though, even in spite of the persecution that they faced, that Jesus had no further burden to place on them. He had no warning for them. They were doing all that was asked of them. What an encouragement for this small church. See, friends, our God is not a God who expects us to be strong when we are not. He knows that we are nothing but dust. And in fact, it is in our reliance upon him when we know that we are weak, that God is able to act most powerfully. And this was the case for the church at Philadelphia. Paul, in facing trials of his own, put it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. He said that Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. The church of Philadelphia could be secure in Christ's love because it was not in their own power or their own pride or their own strength that they had opened the door, that they had stood strong in their faith. No, it was in an admittance of their weakness and a reliance on Christ that allowed them to enter into the presence of Christ so that he could hold them strong. And so Christ exhorts them to keep holding on to the faith. Hold on to what you have. And so next we see an exhortation. To hold fast what you have. To hold fast what you have. 
Let's read again in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Oops, sorry, wrong one. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. There we go. To previous churches, his promise to come quickly was more of a threat to call them to straighten up and fly right. But here it is meant as an encouragement. His coming will be the full culmination of their redemption and establishment of their place in the kingdom of God. And so until then, they need to hold fast to what they have already, faith in him and obedience to his reign. Now, the interesting part about how we think of this encouragement and even the statement that he will keep them from the hour of trial is to recognize that Jesus never promises that they will not die. He never promises that they will never get sick or face physical frailty or trial. One only has to look at these letters in whole. The church of Smyrna, for example, was going to have tribulation and imprisonment leading to martyrdom, to death. Their physical lives would not survive, but their spiritual, eternal spirits, their very souls, would survive. And what better model could we have of this truth than the one who is speaking to the church here in Revelation? Jesus himself knew that his earthly body would be destroyed, but in so doing, it would reap a harvest of righteousness in the kingdom of God that could never be overcome. It's in following in Christ's footsteps that we face trials and tribulations. Now, friends, Jesus has never told us that he would save our physical selves or that he would provide physical comfort or prosperity. Do you know this? I wonder then where we get that expectation because he never promised it. What he has promised is that we will endure any trial and be safe spiritually, eternally in his hand. What he has promised us is that in the midst of those physical trials, our faith will remain strong. Remember his promise in John 16, 33. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He promises tribulation. That's not a promise that's often named and claimed, is it? Now, it's in the midst of trials that our faith can be built and our proclamation of his gospel can be most vocal and effective. Christians are not to be those that avoid trials at all costs. We are to be those who take on what comes with an eye towards our Savior who will hold us fast in the midst of whatever comes against us. And so while some of us in this church have experienced great physical trials over the last two years, and some even in the last few months or weeks, be encouraged And let your faith be strengthened because Jesus has been faithful and true to his promise. He has kept you in the faith even though you've endured physical trials. I personally have been so encouraged to watch the faith of many in this church grow as you have faced various trials. So keep leaning on Jesus, my friends. It's in those times of weakness that he is most strong in the witness that you declare just as these brothers and sisters at Philadelphia were able to do, I've seen that same thing in you. Keep leaning on Jesus. For those that stay firmly reliant on Christ and his sovereign power as king, those will receive a reward, a reward of eternal security. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide there. A reward of eternal security in unity with God. Let's go ahead and reread verses 12 through 13. It says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see here this backdrop and this background of inclusion and exclusion, the door being opened to the temple of God, to the people of God, to the kingdom of God, being firmly established in the people of God, and as well, the backdrop of being excluded from the temple of God. All of this funnels down into this portion 
to make the reward as weighty as possible, to see the truth that even though we deserve to be denied entrance into the temple of God, God instead has provided access to us. And he has allowed us in by his death and resurrection, and we now can be firmly established. And so as with some of the other churches, Jesus breaks down the reward into a few different parts. First, he says, to the one who endures. That's what he means in the word conquer all throughout these letters. The one who conquers the flesh and the kingdom of darkness, who endures in the faith, to them, Christ will secure them in relationship and proximity, unity, and worship of the Father God. For a church that lived in a city that was prone to earth-shaking quakes, this would have been a welcome security. And he said, never shall you go out of the temple of the Lord. We need to recapture this in the church. Oftentimes, it's the opposite group of people that hear the message that's intended. Last week, when we talked about being Christian name only, I think those that needed to hear that are probably the ones that missed it, and the very people that didn't need to hear it and needed to hear instead the message to Philadelphia were the ones going, oh, am I saved? I don't know. Well, today we have the balance of that. We have the balance of the message to Philadelphia where God says, no, you're secure. If you are obedient in the faith, you are secure eternally in God's love. You don't need to worry. The question is, is which group are you in? Now, this imagery of security will come again later in Revelation because it speaks to our eternal security that no one can take from us because we're in the hand of the Father and no one can snatch us out of the hand of the Father. But Then secondly, Jesus states that he will write upon the conquering believer three different names. And these names circle back the fact that Jesus is the true one of God, and that by his death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, he has built the kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the holy Zion, that will never be overcome again. No forces will ever conquer it. Remember Isaiah 60, 14 that we read earlier. Let's go ahead and go to that slide. It says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall become bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We'll see how this idea of the new Jerusalem and the church are one and the same as we go through. But he says here that he will write on his true and faithful believers the name of the Holy One, God the Father, the name of his realm, the new Jerusalem, which is the kingdom of God in paradise. And the name of Jesus in his resurrected state at the right hand of the Father. Now, do you guys remember when you were kids and you had those possessions that you just really didn't want anybody else to play with? Do you remember that? Kyle, I know that was you, right? Yeah? You guys remember that? What would you do? You'd write your name on it. Why? Because you wanted it to stay secure in your possession. And if you really wanted nobody to play with it, you'd write your name all over it at least three different times, right? Well, that's the imagery that he's using here. All of these images speak of loving possession. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. He promised in the Old Testament, Isaiah 56, 5, he says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. God has promised to his people that he will put his name on us so that we know we are his and no one can take us out of his possession. All of these ideas speak of the loving possession and loving ownership that Christ has for us as children. The one and only king of the kingdom has used his power of authority, his key, to grant us access to the throne room of the king and access to the temple in which he is worshipped. This is a place that, on our own merit, we would have no access All access would be denied to us in our unholiness and rebellion. And yet Christ has made it possible. To have the name of the realm of Christ written upon us is a statement much like we would think of the access granted by an American passport. Just as that comes from the high authority of the American government, this city comes down from God out of heaven and is therefore as pure and holy and beautiful as he Now, given our unholiness and rebellion, access to this restored land would be justly denied. And yet, by the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, we have been granted access to the presence of our Creator God. And we have been made His own so that no one might tear us away. 
We've been made citizens of the most high kingdom that has and will exist forever. We are subjects to the king who will one day return as righteous judge. And throughout Revelation, we're going to see this same idea come up again in the idea of being sealed with his royal emblem, that those that are indeed those that belong to Christ, they have his mark upon them and they cannot be taken. Friends, if you are indeed subject to Christ and his people and you have surrendered your life to him, then you and I can proclaim along with Paul, our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you in this room, you've been faithfully hearing the words to the other churches and you have been working out your salvation in fear and trembling, wondering, is my salvation secure? This is a good thing to do because it humbles us before an almighty God. But today he's telling the church to balance that with the fact that if you are in the faith, even if you mess up, if you are repentant, if you turn to him, if you admit your weakness, and your need of him, you are secure in his love. All of this, dear friends, proclaims the amazing love that God has for his people. The amazing love that he has for you, for me. And it speaks to the church at Philadelphia and to us the truth that God has made us his own. And this was great encouragement to the early church, and it should be encouragement to each of us. For it tells us that when Christ calls us to himself, he calls us in through that doorway that he is opened by his blood and he secures us just as a pillar in a temple would be secure. Our eternity is secure in him. Our crown is promised because he has made us his sons and daughters, sons and daughters of the Most High King. Friend, hold on to this truth today. Hold on to it because it will keep you firm in those times of tribulation and trial. So I want to finish with just simply rereading those words of the Apostle Paul as he spoke the text, as he wrote the text that we read earlier from Romans 8. You can just sit and listen. You don't have to turn there. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May the church have ears to hear the encouragement and love that Christ is speaking to the obedient and faithful church as he says, stand secure in my love.